MK News has launched a new app that makes staying updated on all things North Korea easier than ever. The app gives access to the latest articles so you'll never miss a breaking story. It's fast, convenient and designed with readers in mind. Our team is dedicated to bringing you the most accurate and insightful information about North Korea with content and analysis unavailable elsewhere. Don't delay. Download the NK News app from Apple's App Store or Google Play and stay connected with the latest North Korea news and analysis. The app also works with NK Pro subscriptions, offering full access to NK Pro content. And welcome to the NK News Roundtable Month in Review podcast recorded on Tuesday, November 14th here in the NK News Situation Room, as I like to call it. Hat tip to uh, Wolf Blitzer. Welcome to my colleagues Alana Hill, James Fretwell and Ifang Bremer. Welcome back on the show. And Alana, in your case, welcome for the first proper roundtable, though you were on episode 300 briefly. I did. Yeah, I had a short interview, but this is my first time sitting down for a roundtable. This is your first starring role. You've had a cameo. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to try out a new format for this month's roundtable. The three of you have chosen three themes that have kept you busy this month, this last month, I should say. And we're going to talk about those themes and refer to stories that deal with them. So let's start with James. James, you put together the month in review for October, didn't you? I did indeed. One of your usual tasks here at NK News and NK Pro. Tell us what theme stood out for you in the month in review. Well, this theme is an ongoing theme that's been going on for a few months, and it's the really big one that's dominating not just the North Korea world, but also just the it's having a big impact on world news in general, and that is, of course, North Korea's weapons, alleged weapons transfers to Russia, and what it might be potentially receiving in return. Uh, that could be, you know, it's speculated that North Korea might be getting help with its rockets, it might, you know, even getting help with its, its nuclear weapons for providing Russia with ammunition that it is supposedly going to use to aid its invasion of Ukraine. Now, I've got to pick you up on the use of the word alleged. You said alleged weapons exports to Russia. Why are we still using the word alleged two months into this story? Well, that's because I'm very careful by nature, <laughs> I suppose. You know, a lot of country, the US has, has reported on, on North Korean weapons transfers to Russia on a couple of occasions over the last few months now. It seems pretty likely, but we've not had any really 100% firm, hard evidence quite yet that, that Russia is using North hmm. Korean weapons. We, what you mean to say is we haven't yet found the smoking gun or the smoking missile launch tube yet. Right. So the US has released satellite imagery of containers being shipped. It showed the, the routes that it says these containers are going on all the way from Russia's Far East to near the Ukrainian border. There haven't been any pictures of what's inside these containers as far as I know. Mm. I think the biggest media outlet to report on North Korean weapons in the war in Ukraine actually thus far has been the Financial Times. And that was actually North Korean weapons that ended up in Ukrainian hands, interestingly, actually. 
I think the story was about the Ukrainian forces actually managed to intercept mm. a North Korean weapons delivery and they thought, you know what, we'll we'll use these, we'll take these for ourselves. So going forward... It's a forward, case of Russia shooting itself in the foot. Uh, I suppose so, in, in that instance, yeah. But, but there were, going back to your photos, you mentioned photos, there was a bit of a confusion we reported here at NK News, I think our, our colleague uh, Anton, who unfortunately is not in the room with us, that some of the photos seem to show crates being imported from Russia, not going to Russia. If I remember that correctly? So the, well, first of all, the US, they came out with this big announcement. They were showing satellite imagery of containers going from North Korea to Russia. Mm -hmm. That seems to be, as I understand it, all okay, consistent with our reporting um, the the report that I think that we were disputing, there were there was satellite analysis by another outlet that was picking up on containers that were piling up at a rail station near the border with Russia, so saying in that North these, Korea, right? Yeah, and saying that these could be weapons shipments. But a couple of months ago, NK Pro, mm. we got exclusive on the ground photos right. um, from near this area and looking at the writing that was on the buildings in Korean. It seems that this area is used for disinfection, disinfecting imports. So if they were weapons exports, maybe North Korea wouldn't be so uh, so worried about going through the whole disinfection process. They might actually, in fact, be imports from Russia in that case. But that doesn't mean that what the US is saying is is incorrect. It does seem that North Korea is exporting large amounts of ammunition to Russia. Well, I think by now we we have seen actually Russian troops also using North Korean weapons ah. in Ukraine. I mean, it's still a lot of open source evidence. So basically troops who are fighting in Ukraine or are stationed near the border of Ukraine, Russian troops who will upload um, some kind of makeshift footage of where they're fighting. And we are slowly seeing more and more weapons that look like at least a North Korean, for example, 122 millimeter rockets mm -hmm. and also common artillery ammunition. So again, very difficult to verify, but more and more footage is appearing on, for example, Twitter, Telegram of Russian troops with at least what looks like North Korean ammunition. So mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that we've all been on the lookout for for so long, because as James said, all we had before was just these vague satellite imagery of trains, which basically could be carrying anything. Mm -hmm. By now, we understand that it's more likely that a lot of the ammunition will come through ship, actually. Mm. Which is a long way to go. It seems inefficient. It seems inefficient, but perhaps there's there you can put more containers on a ship than ah, on a train, yeah. right? And yeah, if these yeah. are really the, the, the gigantic shipments that it seems to be, then it would be actually perhaps more efficient to, to do it on a But on that a, seems a to allow the path open for interdiction. Remember the uh, proliferation security initiative that was started under George W. Bush about 20 years ago, and that was all about stopping uh, North Korean ships on the high seas that were suspected of, not necessarily proven to have, but suspected of transporting a rocket or nuclear technology and and whether i don't know whether that's still something that can happen but proliferation security initiative was exactly designed to stop that kind of thing and that has happened right you've seen we've seen a lot of these shipments appear in the panel of expert reports but that's been a, a couple of years ago by now and then you have to imagine these ships are going from a port in north korea yep through first North Korean territorial waters, right. then perhaps a slight bit of international waters, I'm not quite sure, quite quickly entering R Russian waters. So mm. it would be very, definitely an extremely risky area to intercept any shipments. 
I can imagine. I'm no but, but, weapon smuggler myself. This is not a, a part of your past <laughs> that we uh, <laughs> it's on we, my resume. Mm. But I also would wonder how much easier it is to maybe ship things like this in in container ships. Anton and Colin did a really interesting piece looking at satellite imagery and uh, some shipping tracker data and found that maybe Russia and North Korea are, are using very similar ships and like kind of lookalike ships mm, and switching those out. So, helpful. yeah. Right. So it, it's ba- my understanding is it's three basic things that we're looking at. We're looking at uh, bullets, mortars, and some kind of rockets. Is that that's more or less it? That's what we are most certain of right now. Right. Uh, though there is speculation that also more advanced North Korean ah. weaponry, more advanced like ballistic, uh, short-range ballistic missiles, could be of interest to Russia because they're so similar to the short-range ballistic missiles that Russia is already using. Right. Okay. Now, uh, North Korea then, in return, instead of money, or perhaps in addition to money, is supposed to be getting some some tech, some technological assistance. I'm thinking about, would they be perhaps getting multiple independently targetable re-entry vehicles, also known as MIRVs? Is that something that North Korea might be getting from, from Russia to help it put multiple warheads onto one rocket to send, you know, to the United States in the event of a war, for example? Well, I think there's been a lot of speculation on what North Korea might be receiving in return. This has ranged from technology for even nuclear-powered submarines. Hmm. It seems that, I suppose, maybe the most likely is assistance with launching North Korean satellites, because that's what Russian President Vladimir Putin kind of alluded to when Kim Jong-un was visiting the country. You know, it's again another one of these cases that we're going to have to wait and see. But, you know, the the downside for Russia in, in providing certain elements of military technology to North Korea is actually once you hand it over to the North Koreans, now it might seem like a, a good idea in the moment, but in the future you don't actually know where some of this stuff might end up, you know, North Korea could could sell it on. So Russia might be a little bit cautious mm-hmm. about exporting some of the some of the most advanced military technology. But um yeah, perhaps perhaps something to do with uh North Korean rockets and satellites. It's interesting that you're suggesting that Russia might be cautious because of where those weapons systems or, or rocket systems may end up in the future. But it doesn't seem that Russia is particularly careful about violating uh, a United Nations Security Council resolution that it itself signed on to, and I looked it up last night. United Nations Security Council Resolution 1718, or 1718, adopted way back on October 14, 2006. This resolution specifically forbids the uh, exporting of items, materials, equipment, goods, and technology determined by the Security Council or the committee, which could contribute to the DPRK's nuclear-related ballistic missile-related or other weapons of mass destruction-related programs. Now, Russia signed on to this resolution back in 2006, and it wouldn't have passed the Security Council without Russia's active support, right? As a member of the P5, they all have the right to veto. And now, 17 years later, uh, we see this. Has Russia said anything about that contradiction there at all? Well, you know, from our perspective, obviously, when you've got the leader of Russia talking about potentially helping North Korea launch satellites, this does seem like a very blatant, you know, upcoming violation of, of UN sanctions. But I and think I should Russia... point out he was also leader when that resolution, that United Nations Security Council resolution was passed in 2006. Right. So it's the same leader. But, you know, I don't think Russia is going to, even if there are any violations of 
UN Security Council sanctions, I don't think they're going to admit it. You know, they're going to try and justify helping North Korea in any way it can, because as you said, Russia signed on to these resolutions. If it just goes around saying, yeah, we violated them and we're proud of it, it really undermines its own role on the UN Security Council. For instance, with the North Korean satellite launches, Russia might say, well, we'll help launch the North Korean satellite using our own rockets. And so therefore, we're not contributing to North Korean ballistic missile development. Now, whether you agree with that interpretation or not, it does seem like something Russia could say, you know, we'll get the satellite up. And then once it's up, you know, North Korea can do whatever it, it, it wants with it. And, you know, interestingly, it kind of comes full circle because when Vladimir Putin, he first visited North Korea for his first summit shortly after becoming Russian leader around 20 years ago, there was actually a discussion, you know, if we cast our minds back, North Korea at that time hadn't developed the ability to launch a missile all the way over to the US. It was still working toward that goal. And there was some discussion about well, if we offer to launch North Korea's satellites for it, then we're taking away North Korea's opportunity to mm. practice its ballistic missile-related technology. And uh, so therefore, you know, we might not like its satellites, but at least, you know, we're stopping the rocket development. So, you know, there might be that kind of argument going on now as well behind the scenes. If, mm -hmm. if Russia offers to launch North Korea's satellites for it, North Korea hasn't you know, it, it does seem to be able to hit the US now, but there's obviously more elements of its missile program it could perfect. If Russia launches North Korean satellites for it using its own rockets, it might take away that, that opportunity to improve its capabilities even more. Okay. Any thoughts on the more recent visit by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to Pyongyang to meet with both Kim Jong-un and Foreign Minister Che Sun-hee? I mean, the, uh, the details seemed kind of scant to me. There were certainly photographs uh, to, uh, to highlight the optics of it. But the, uh, the state media only offered a brief report saying that Kim Jong-un's established a long-term plan for a new era of stable and future-oriented US-Russia-DPRK uh, relations, uh, which, you know, it, it's, right. it's a very bromide statement. It doesn't say anything at all, very anodyne. Right. I think the visit of Russia's defense minister... Mr. Shoigu. Mr. Shoigu was more significant in mm. the sense that there was a lot of North Korean state media coverage about that visit, right? There was, yeah. And then including I, footage. Yes. Not just photos. Yeah. No, f footage, photos, everything. The whole thing, yeah. And I'm not sure. It's Perhaps the Lavrov meeting was more about detailed discussions, mm. less so about sending a message to the world, actually going into more concrete aspects of the cooperation between North Korea and Russia, which really seems to be thriving at this point. Mm -hmm. He stayed for about 24 hours. He also went and laid a wreath or, or two at the memorial in, uh, in Pyongyang for the Russian army that, or the Soviet army that helped liberate Korea in the, the Second World War. So it's quite a, I mean, Lavrov's a busy man as the foreign minister of a, a country that's at war with Ukraine. So to spend a whole day there, something of substance must have been talked about, but hasn't been released. So it might be something that we only learn about it after the fact, like we'll see an increase in bilateral trade or an influx of new North Korean workers to Russia later this year or in spring next year, and then just assume sort of working backwards, uh, this may be a result of those agreements, right? Even yesterday, we had a story talking about a governor in this far eastern region in Russia 
potentially giving farmland to North Koreans um, to use and talking about a delegation from, I think it's called Primorsky Krai. Excuse me, Primorsky Krai, over on the the far east of Russia. Not great farmland in the winter, though. Yeah, I I guess beggars can't be choosers. Um, They'll take maybe what they can get. Mm. But uh, but part of this story was that a delegation from this region could potentially go and visit North Korea too. And I think he was talking also about like doing things like uh, having people from that region vacation in North Korea wow. and things like that. So oh, going back to the 1930s with yeah. Russians vacationing in uh, in North Korea. We might be seeing lots more of these kinds of visits. So I think slow regional cooperation is definitely increasing on a ah. a lot. Like the, the speed is picking up. Yeah. And especially that's also facilitated by these high level visits right now. So the bordering region, uh, Russian region to North Korea definitely sees a lot of opportunities. Mm. And this is also a region that economically has has some difficulties because it's so far from the center. And underpopulated. Underpopulated. They're, all, they're desperate for people to work in construction, for example. Right. And those are areas that North Korea can deliver for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in a lot of sen- a lot of ways, it just it just makes sense, regardless of the UN sanctions, <laughs> basically. Well, and that brings us very naturally to our next theme, Alana, as uh, deputy managing editor, read more stories than anybody writes in one month. Um, Allegedly, <laughs> <laughs> could become your nickname. Allegedly, Alana. Uh, now, what theme have you been gripped by in the last few weeks? Yeah, so we've been covering a lot of this UN panel of experts reports, mm-hmm. and um, some of the things that we've been covering from this report is covering overseas workers. So North Koreans working in different countries and sending their wages essentially back to North Korea. So it was a couple of instances. One in particular was some Korean restaurant workers in Laos. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly for yes, our It's either Laos or Laos. Listeners. So, uh, uh, oh, you know, uh, Gordon Flake might be listening. He speaks Laotian, so he'll probably write us an email or send me a text to let me know whether it's Laos or Lao. Uh, forgive me, Gordon. Um, so there was that instance. We had a story, if actually you wrote about some construction workers mm. um, in Russia and then also, uh, no surprise, lots of IT workers around right. the world. So, Well, t- start off with these two intrepid North Korean restaurateurs in Laos or Laos who were <laughs> doing not the obvious thing, uh, but they were actually running a, a restaurant that wasn't a Korean restaurant. No, so it was supposed to be a Japanese restaurant serving sushi and tempanyaki. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, when the Laotian government responded to these claims, they said that the restaurant had since been transferred ownership, but was still serving Korean food. So there was a bit of a discrepancy there that I thought was interesting. Right. I imagine patrons are quite disappointed if they're going for sushi and maybe not getting what they hoped for. Well, or if they're going for bulgogi and, and being served <laughs> sushi instead. Yeah. And then also this report had kind of mentioned that these they were supposed to be running this restaurant, but were also aiding uh, IT workers in the country. OK, so that's uh, restaurateurs and IT workers working together in Laos to... Uh, well, I mean, I guess that's probably a common thing, right? I mean, in, in Holland, there are always those stories about the plethora of, uh, of ice cream shops or Nutella pancake shops in Amsterdam that are allegedly money laundering fronts, right? They're cash businesses. So right. they work together with another business and then a lot of cash gets through. Exactly. Those are those mysterious shops that somehow don't have any customers, right, but, but still open. are in the prime location of Amsterdam. Right. right. That's my theory about the dress shops in Itaewon. Say more. I think that they could be a cover for something because why are there so many? <laughs> and why are they always empty? But this isn't. This is a story for a different day, Jacko. It is, but I'm intrigued now. Can, can we, uh, actually, Alana, as uh, the uh, the deputy managing editor, can we start off a, a separate podcast just on the dress stores of Itaewon? I think that, I'm, I'm totally up for that. That may actually get quite a listenership going on. 
Now, I can't imagine that Laos is expected to be a lucrative place for North Korea to make money running restaurants. After all, it's, it's a communist country still, and it's classified by the World Bank as a lower middle income developing country. So uh, I, I was fascinated to see in the story that there's a, as many as four restaurants and a night market that employ North Korean workers. It's really an interesting focus of resources if there is nothing shady going on. Well, I think that's what, exactly what Alan already mentioned, yeah. that maybe there's more to it than just serving food, right? Right. <laughs> that's the most likely explanation because, as you said, running even four restaurants in Laos will definitely not fund this you know, yeah. nuclear weapons program. Right. Now, in, in China, I mean, where there used to be, I don't know how many there are now, but there used to be quite a lot of restaurants in China. When I went to Shanghai in 2015, I think there were as many as four or five different North Korean restaurants. And there it makes some sense because the waitresses can sing and do these floor shows in Chinese, which brings in the nostalgic crowd of people who have nostalgic ideas about the Cultural Revolution, for example, or about the days under Mao. And so they like to see the kind of thing. But whether that strikes a chord in Laos or whether the girls there are trained to, to sing in Laotian, that's another question. Mm -hmm. I think also in this report, it talks about these IT workers that you know are numbering up to 10,000. So while it might... In Laos alone? No, or, across oh, the world. Yeah. But, so while it might be only maybe you know, a smaller number in, in Laos, if yeah. you're looking at this across the broader context of the entire globe, you know, it adds up. Yeah, so that actually brings me to a question that's, that I've long had is, yeah, how many North Korean IT workers are there? So we've got a ballpark figure now of 10,000. So this, this UN report said mm. as many the as 10,000. Yeah, yeah, and earning like as much as 3,000 to 5,000 a month. Mm -hmm. and then Each or? <laughs> each, and okay. then it said some of the highly skilled workers can earn as much as $20,000 a month. Right. Um, Does it say in which countries these workers may or may not be located? It didn't specifically mention countries, I believe. There's ten thousands a lot, right? I mean, you'd, yeah. you'd, you know, if you lived if you lived in a village and suddenly there were you know a, a workshop of of North Korean IT workers there, you'd notice that. I think um, I would imagine too, and and we've talked about this before. They might not be purporting themselves as North Koreans. Uh, you know, yeah. they could be saying they're from other countries and right. Now, uh, turning back to Russia, which we sort of already hinted at this earlier, that there's a, a need for construction workers in Russia, certainly in the Far East. Now, as I uh, also mentioned in the panel of experts, some North Koreans who were injured while working on a new apartment building back in 2020 in, in Sahalin, the, uh, the island on the, uh, the Far East of Russia, and they fell six and seven floors. Yeah, they were very injured seriously themselves. injured, yeah. Right. And Russia said to the panel of experts that they were not construction workers, but they were, in fact, students on, quote, an industrial work experience course as part of their studies at Sahalin State University, fun federally funded institution of higher education. So that, that's a, an interesting story, which means if it's true, if they are, in fact, students, that they couldn't have been making money, because otherwise it would have been a breach of United Nations Security Council's resolution 2375 and 2397, both passed in 2017, which calls for North Korean laborers who are working overseas to be sent home and no new visas to be issued. So certainly by 2020, there shouldn't have been any North Koreans working in construction in Russia. Right, so... The, oh, yeah, James. Oh, I was going on. to say, case closed then. I mean, thank goodness <laughs> they're on... Uh, you know, that, that's going to be the suspicion, though, isn't it, that they're, they're, Russia knows that it would be a violation of UNSC sanctions to employ North Korean workers, and so... Perhaps, according to those who are more suspicious of Moscow's intentions, they could be using different types of visas to hire these workers. It's still, compared to before the COVID-19 pandemic, it still seems like low numbers of North Koreans entering Russia overall at the moment. You know, I think suspicions are only going to grow once we get a hold of more data, and it seems that 
thousands of students on work experiences visas just you know if they if they just happen to show up at their construction sites in the near future. So yeah, just to touch on what James mentioned there about different types of visas, since that UN uh, sanction was brought in in, ni- in 2019, excuse me, uh, Russia has cut down on issuing work visas. 2017. 2017. Mm. But the uh, overseas labourers was enacted to 2019. It wasn't until 2019. Well, they, they had a, yeah, in, in 2017 they said no more new visas and then they had a thing by the end of 2019 everyone gets sent home. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they did cut down on issuing those types of visas. And then we saw an increase in other types of visas. So, you know, tourist visas, student visas, those kinds of things. So one of the things after I read this about these two North Koreans who fell and apparently got really seriously injured Mm. is I reached out to a a recent defector who actually worked in Russia until last year. Mm -hmm. And he told me that this is, um, they were, they were, yeah, might have been on student visas, maybe even been connected to the university indeed. Uh. But they were most definitely, yeah working for money. He had an interesting point about their age as well. What did he say? Oh, that they were in, I think I read in the story that they were all over 30. No, um, yeah. so so this, this particular defector told me that if there are North Koreans over 30 on student visas in Russia, they're ah. most likely to be right. not actual students, but right. working in construction for money. I mean, that, you know, it would be uh, not that hard to find someone at that university and say, have you ever seen any North Korean students in the class here, right? I mean, either they're going to class or they're not. Yeah. And, and they're spending all their time uh, on the work site getting uh, industrial training. Now, if you haven't, it, listeners, if you haven't yet heard episode 304 of the NK News podcast, in which I talked to the former uh, chair of the UN panel of experts, uh, Eric Pentonvoke, about the difficulties of proving allegations and the internecine bickering between the different members, states of the uh, the POE, uh, do go back and have a listen to episode 304. And so, yeah, the uh, back on the uh, the visa issue, Russia's ambassador to North Korea, Alexander Matsugora, stated that not a single North Korean with a valid work visa was still in Russia in early 2020. So, yeah, if there are North Koreans and they're doing work, it must be on some other kind of visa, very clear. All right, Yifeng, you just mentioned a defector. You write a lot about human rights and North Korean refugees. What's the latest on North Korean escapees that you want to talk about? Well, I think it's always worth mentioning the quarterly a number of defectors that enter South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Ministry of Unification here in Seoul uh, every quarter releases uh, statistics on how many defectors have entered South Korea, how many North Koreans have come to South Korea to settle here, and then also breaks that down in gender. Mm-hmm. So in the third quarter of 2023, we've seen 40 North Korean defectors arriving uh, between July and September, that is, uh, bring the total to 139 mm-hmm. in the whole year. And that is definitely uh, an increase. So we're slowly seeing more defectors entering uh, South Korea. Right. But before the pandemic, it was still over 1,000, wasn't right. it? Right. It's, it's still incomparable to pre-pandemic numbers, yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's always interesting to see. But at the same time, the Unification Ministry said in a press release that many factors affect these defector numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's difficult to speak of a trend yet. But I spoke to uh, Hannah Song of the Database Center for North Korean Human Rights, right. an organization that interviews a lot of recent defectors as part of their efforts to record human rights violations. And she said that many of the recent arrivals have come from China and mm-hmm. spent a lot of years in China. 
Right. right. So they're not necessarily coming straight from North Korea. Most likely they've stayed in third countries for a long time. And did she say anything about what motivates these North Korean refugees to uh, finally make the move away from China and make the arduous journey to South Korea or another place? Well, she told me that, for example, she told me the story of one woman who tried to defect pre-COVID-19 but mm-hmm. wasn't able to. But now, even in China, you know, pandemic restrictions have been lifted most of the, most of the places. So it's, it's, it's getting relatively easier to move mm-hmm. a bit more freely. So I guess that could explain right. a slight jump. Yeah. Well, of course, the, the repatriations as well, a lot of defectors that have been in China for a long time are going to be, you know, they might have been prompted by the news of the repatriations, uh, China's forced uh, repatriations of North Korean escapees um, and thought, you know, it's it's now or never. I need, I either need to make the, the jump to South Korea now or I risk being being sent back now that the borders are open. And sent back potentially to countries that they haven't known. You know, Yifang, you covered a story about a woman who had been in China since she was a young girl. And her family was concerned about her being sent back and not even being able to speak Korean anymore. Right. So this is the the very sad story of Kim Cheol-ok. Mm. And she was repatriated after 25 years in China. Wow. Um, so Her whole life, basically. Yes. And I spoke to family members of her who are extremely worried about uh, her safety and actually have no idea where she is right now. Sure. All they know is that on uh, October 9th, she was rep- repatriated from a Chinese prison ah. to North Korea. And yeah, this this person has lived more of her life in China than in North Korea. Yep, yep. Doesn't even speak Korean well, mm. from what her family members have told me. And these are the kind of people who are being sent back right now. And she was actually uh, trafficked in China. She was she entered China when she was fourteen, right? Undocumented, mm-hmm. sold to a Chinese man somehow uh, made, a, made a life there and got children, uh, got a daughter, and now it's just being sent back just because she was unlucky to be caught right. and without any documentation. You also wrote recently, uh, and I think we've talked on this podcast recently, about another North Korean woman named Kim Son Hyang, uh, who was specifically named in a report to the UN Working Group to try to prevent her from being sent back. Do you have any updates on what's happened there? No. There, okay. there's simply no update. So basically, it's 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 completely unclear where the North Koreans who have been repatriated are right now. Mm-hmm. So we do know from family members that a considerable number of North Koreans who are uh, in Chinese prisons have been sent back forcibly to North Korea. Right. And after that, we just don't know what's happening. We don't know if where they are. Presumably, they're going through some kind of interrogation, mm-hmm. uh, likely in, in, in camps under really, really awful conditions. So it's actually really difficult to speak with these family members, also as a journalist, because it's such a painful story. They're, yeah. so, they're desperate to know where their family members are. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely very heavy stuff to work on, yeah. What's it like for you as an editor, uh, Alana, with these stories coming uh, across your desk? Yeah, I mean, just on a personal level, it's so sad. And so I can't imagine knowing that there's almost this timeline, that time is ticking. Because as Yifang said, you know, once they are back in North Korea, we don't really know. We, it's very hard to find out what happens, to yeah. contact them, to hear, you know, what's happening. So, you know, for these families that are just desperate to stop their loved ones being repatriated, I, I just can't even imagine that, that time ticking down before they're 
potentially gone forever, you know? Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, as well as the, uh, uh, an uptick in um, North Korean refugees coming through, uh, through China and Southeast Asia, which is a very long journey, we've also had some stories recently, which I've talked about uh, briefly with Jongmin earlier in the podcast, about uh, boat crossings. We have an uptick in, in uh, boats coming uh, across either, well, both the West Sea and the East Sea, people uh, taking a boat, borrowing a boat, stealing a boat, buying a boat, I don't know, and then coming across in small groups. What have you noticed about that, Ifeng? I mean, it's it's honestly too early to speak of a trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about maybe two, three boats this year, something like that. Right. And they've never been in big numbers in any year, right? Boat numbers no. have always been less than those coming through the China route. Definitely, yeah. But it's interesting. It's definitely something I'm I'm keeping an eye out on because both the National Intelligence Service, the South Korean um, spy agency, and mm-hmm. the Ministry of Unification have sort of predicted that there could be an increase because during the pandemic, both North Korea and China have really, really uh, increased the fences, for yeah. example, and, and uh, electronic uh, monitoring of the border. Yeah. So it's getting more and more difficult to cross the China side. Right. So, yeah, it could definitely happen in the future that we will see more of this. But it's very dangerous and very, very difficult to, to undertake such a journey. Mm-hmm. How long do you think it takes? Good question. I mean, it depends on how far away from the South Korean border mm-hmm. these boats depart. And these are small wooden boats. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's depending also on the, the amount of fuel that you've got and how, how strong the motor is. Because if these are, in some cases, small fishing boats, they may not be made for uh, or equipped with a motor for deep sea uh, travel. They're just kind of supposed to be puttering around the, the coastal area. Um, so, and they may not have enough fuel to go very long distances. So then they're, they're basically left adrift and hope that they drift to the right side of the border, you know, the, the side that they want to go to. Uh, there has been, of course, some controversy on the South Korean side about uh, the South Korean Navy or Coast Guard not being fast enough to detect and pick up these boats, right? Yes, um, there, there was some contro- controversy there because, you know, these are really small wooden boats. At the same time, the South Korean public mm-hmm. expects their Navy and their Coast Guard to spot these boats as soon as possible right. because of the risk of you know, in- infiltrators, for mm-hmm. example. Yep. So yeah, uh, it apparently took a while for these boats to be detected at, detected at the same time, I think. I can understand that there is some critique, but if this was a real threat to national security in the form of a military boat, I think definitely there would be uh, a better chance of mm-hmm. detecting these kind of ships. Now, speaking of boats, there was the a case a few years ago of uh, uh, some sailors in, or fishermen in a boat that came uh, south of the northern limit line. Uh, but most of them ended up dead. Two of them, I think, were uh, still alive, and they were handed back to uh, North Korea via Panmunjom. And that's one that human rights and South Korean conservatives have uh, criticized the repatriation of these men. Is this still an ongoing issue? Definitely. <laughs> um, it's definitely still a very controversial issue. I'm, I'm not quite sure on the latest on the court case. Are, are you up to date with that, James? I think not on the court's case in particular, but I, South Korea, the current administration, is trying to make it much more difficult for South Korea to send North Koreans who say they, that they want to defect back to North Korea. That wouldn't happen under the current administration, probably, because they, you know, they've um, taken a much firmer stance toward North Korea and on North Korean human rights in the previous administration, but I think they want to get the the rules in place now 
so that future administrations that might not be uh, quite on the same line of, of thinking on this issue as the Yoon Song-yeol administration, um, that they can't do this in the future. Yeah, and now we, we don't, I don't recall seeing any news about what's happened to those men since their repatriation, but I can't imagine it was anything good. I mean, they did confess to, uh, to killing their uh, officers and, and, and I can't remember if they threw them overboard or left their bodies on the boat, but they did confess to murder, so I don't think anything good has happened to them uh, up north. That's pretty much a foregone conclusion. Okay, well, we have a few minutes left, so what, what are the things that you're looking for in the next month and a half before the end of the year? What are, what's something predicting or speculating what might happen before December 31st? Each of you come up with an idea. A ladies first, if I may. Well, we were supposed to have a satellite launch in October. There's been two failed satellite launches already this, this year. Am I right in saying that? Um, and so North Korea had pr- promised that we were going to have a satellite launch in October, which of course didn't happen. So perhaps a satellite launch by the end of the year, maybe? Okay, all right. They've still got a little bit of time, particularly with whatever tech they may have been receiving from Russia or time to hand over a satellite to Russia and have them launch it for, uh, for North Korea. Yep. Uh, Ifang, thoughts on uh, what to see? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely curious whether we'll see another big large-scale repatriation from China mm. because since the, the one that happened on October 9th, there has been so much international pressure on China uh, to stop doing this, including from the South Korean government. So I'm really curious to see if they're sympathetic to that criticism mm-hmm. at all or whether they're just going to go on and do what they've been doing. So that's one thing that I'm keeping uh, yeah, a close eye on for do sure. Do we have any precedents where China in the past has decided against sending some people back? Not that I know of. For As far as I know, it's simply China's policy yeah. because it regards... Uh, North Koreans who live undocumented in China as illegal immigrants to just mm. send them back. Yeah. So I'm really curious to see what's going to happen now because supposedly there are hundreds, potentially more than a thousand North Koreans still detained in Chinese prisons. Wow. So yeah, before the end of the year, I'm really cu- curious to mm-hmm. see what will happen there. At the same time, yeah, I'm not very, very positive when it comes to that. I, 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 I'm afraid that we'll see another large-scale repatriation. Uh, that is unfortunate. Okay, and uh, James, what are you looking forward to uh, before the end of the year? Well, we're still looking out for Vladimir Putin's visit to Pyongyang at some point. We don't know when that some point will be. It was, you know, reported that during Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia that mm-hmm. he accepted an invitation to hop over to North Korea at some point. Maybe uh, Sergei Lavrov's visit in October to North Korea. Maybe that was part of some kind of preparations for the Russian leader's visit to North Korea. We don't know. And this would be, if it, if, it, if it does happen, it would be his first trip to the country in over 20 years. So it'd be a really big deal, massive repercussions, not only for Eastern Europe, of course, and the weapons transfers that are allegedly occurring, but also what might come from Russia, North Korea, cooperation and how that might affect security on the Korean peninsula. Adding to that, I think I'm very curious to see if we will see these KN-23 short-range ballistic missiles deployed in Ukraine by Mm -hmm. Russia because that would presumably be the next step of Russia-North Korea uh, arms cooperation. And yeah, maybe just on a side note, one of the things that surprised me a little bit with so much happening in the world right now with the conflict in in Israel, for example, how little upheaval there is, at least in European media, when it comes to these North Korea-Russia 
shipments. I I, I don't know. For some reason, I mm. thought there would be way much more controversy, way way many more headlines about it. Of course, we've been reporting on it a lot, but now that we've actually see more and more evidence of it happening, it just feels a bit underwhelming. Mm. And it yeah. does really have big implications for the war, not necessarily because North Korea is more technically advanced than Russia. But, you know, a big part of this war is, you know, a, v- a huge amount of ammunition is being used. Yep. And if Russia just gets something to, to fire at the Ukrainians just to, to keep them going, I mean, remember, support seems to be waning for Ukraine in, in certain parts of the Western world. And, you know, if Russia can keep going just that little bit longer, thanks to North Korean aid, then maybe at some point Ukraine supporters might lose a bit of appetite and will be forced to the negotiation table, which is something that Kiev really doesn't want to do. Well, in response to uh, to James's prediction that Putin might visit Pyongyang, I'd uh, like to cast our minds back to a couple of months ago when I had Andre Lankov on the show, who suggested that Kim Jong-un might want to be visiting Beijing around this time to... Uh, reaffirm his uh, closeness with and support for China's President Xi Jinping, that uh, China doesn't like to be left out of the picture too much, and all this focus on Russia, North Korea, uh, with these three state visits, that uh, it may be time for uh, for Kim to go and show some loyalty to Beijing, who is, after all, his closest alliance partner. You were going to say, Ifang? No, I think you're absolutely right, because China is, after all, you know, the biggest trade partner still. That's right. But yeah, one thing, going back to the, the weapons shipments, I think... I mean, I read a lot of Dutch news. I'm from the Netherlands. But one tendency that I, I, I spot a lot is people do kind of underestimate North Korean weapons, I think. Mm. Uh, a lot of the things you read in especially European media on the on these, on these shipments is that Russia is so desperate that it'll get some junk from the DPRK, right? But, I mean, we follow North Korea very closely. Right. And we do know that North Korean weapons are can definitely be very advanced, mm-hmm. right? So... It would be very dangerous, I think, at least, to underestimate yep. this co- cooperation between Russia and North Korea, which can potentially have huge implications also for Europe. That's a very good point and, and definitely something with it we should keep an eye on in the future. Well, uh, thank you all once again, Alana, Ifang, and James, for coming on the Roundtable podcast for November. Uh, great work, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jacko. And don't forget, everybody, get busy living or get busy dying. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro News and Analysis Service. This is not your average news service. It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? the absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast.
Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>